You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics Season 2, where we're turning to the 16th century Christian mystic, St. Teresa of Avila. I had planned to engage Jim in a dialogue around Mansion 6 and 7 today, but as you'll hear, uh, I didn't get that far. As you may be experiencing, these concepts are so deep um, that I spent quite a bit of time unpacking many of them one at a time, and so... We will have a second episode next week where we get deeper into Mansion 6 and 7. Before we get started, I just wanted to do a shout out to my nieces and nephews who live in the Philippines, who I miss very much and I I mention in this episode. So love to Sam, Ottie, Lulu and Georgie Grace. And so here's the dialogue with Jim. So listening to your two talks and reflecting on... Teresa's writing in the interior castle what she's trying to get at what you're trying to get at in these mystical mansions it's so subtle it's so hard to grasp so for me personally I feel a a, more of a resonance of truth in my heart about what's being said but I don't understand it all I don't and I don't I can't go to my own experience to find it all is that is that is that normal for someone who's trying to track with you? Yes. Uh, She says this several times through her book, really. She says, I'm speaking of things which cannot be understood except to the extent you've experienced them. And she says, even the one who has experienced them can't conceptually grasp them. But in hearing it, we recognize the beauty of it because we we recognize this kind of primordial uh, call to this union with God, which is already occurring. See, it's a very reality of being created by God in the image and likeness of God. So we're like, we're listening and we get intimations of something. We we intimate the relevance of it at some very deep level. We can also be very aware that we, we can't begin to grasp. That's why we need to be very patient with ourselves and bring it to prayer and walk with it. But it's it's just like that. Because if it wasn't like that, it'd be something we could explain. It would just be more of ourself. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? The ego would explain it and move on to the next topic. But this is the intimate immediacy of the unexplainable accessing us. It's kind of like that, I think. So then how do we think about someone like Teresa who is explaining it? Because it, I think she gives us the sense that, oh, I, I should be able to explain it like Teresa does. So she's someone who went all the way to the seventh mansion and then and then she's explaining it to us. Is that, Am I getting that right? <clears throat> yes. Let's say, let's say there's, there's two things here. Let's say, yes, Teresa is someone who's reached this state, this unitive state we'll be talking about a little later. She did do that. But there are people who reach this state who can't put words to it like she does. See, that's what the gift of the mystic teacher is, that there are mystics who are graced with this state as their vocation. But then there are those who are graced with putting words to it. 
But notice what she's doing. She's putting words to what she's experienced. See, it's her experience. But the, the, the integrity of her sharing of her experience. She's also very aware because she did a lot of spiritual direction with the nuns coming to her. So she's very aware that who she's really writing for is the person who's being interiorly drawn in this direction. And she knows how hard it is to find trustworthy guidance because we're subject to self-deception. We're subject to, you know, the very things we think are hindrances are actually taking us to the deeper place and all of that. So I think that said, she's, she's, a two, she's gifted in two ways. One, the mystical union itself is part of the, the, the charism of uh, holiness. It's a, a manifestation of holiness, a dimension of holiness. But then also the gift of articulating it for the benefit of others, which is us. You know, we read her, and uh, she's trying to help us. Mm -hmm. And she she says in the sixth mansion that it's actually hard to find spiritual direction, a spiritual director that can understand what you go through. So this mystical experience is by no means mainstream, not even in church leadership, not even in uh, <laughs> roles in the church that are there to guide us and teach us. Is that, is that right? Yes, yeah, this is a, here's how I put it. Here's how I put it. Am I over the years talking to people in direction on retreats? And uh, they, they say to me, there, there are people who they come to silent retreats, so they're drawn to this. And there are people who have not, they don't have a spiritual director. They don't have someone with whom they can dialogue to help them find their way. They don't have any director at all. There are other people who do have a director, a man or woman of deep prayer, who helps them with the scriptures and Christ consciousness and the gospel and discipleship. But when it comes to this, they don't, uh, they don't know how to go there. Or they, there's people who have had such a director and lost her director because he died or ran off with the cook or did some damn thing. <laughs> he moved to Idaho, something. And, and once in a while, you find somebody with a director. So when I was with Merton, we would talk like this. And he would say, once in a while, you'll find someone with whom you can speak about such things, which was him. He said, but you'll spend most of your life without such a person which is your solitude, depending on God. So you have your life, you have your scriptures, and then what you have is the teacher, Teresa. And um, her deathless presence shines out and touches us like that. So what we find is in the leadership of the church is people who are good people. They feel called to ministry. It's their vocation. They, they, hopefully they're teaching the gospel and helping people. There's all of that. But um, people who are drawn to this, who come to the retreats, will say, why don't I hear this in church? See, How come no one talks like this at church? It isn't that sometimes you have deep Bible study or you have centering prayer, uh, different things. It, it is there. But it's, you really have to search. Sometimes I suggest that people, they approach a local retreat house and look for retreat houses that offer contemplative retreats and see if there's a spiritual director there does contemplative spiritual direction. So, it's, But you have to search for it. And that's part of the loneliness of the Sixth Mansion, is being misunderstood by people. You know, it's so hard to find somebody who uh, is himself or herself in this and can guide you in it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of the, that's what it's part of what this path is like. There's a certain loneliness in it.
Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. and even for those who don't find themselves in one of the later mansions, but they're drawn to this kind of path and, and there's there's no one to illuminate it or to even kind of um, uh, be able to, to, to understand that deep, deep longing for that for that kind of deeper path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's say, sort of this way, Let, let's say we're talking about the first three mansions. And so we're talking about devotional sincerity and discipleship of following Christ. In a daily rendezvous with prayer with Lexio Divina, we take in the word, we reflect on it, meditatio, the prayer helping with this, we carry out through, through the day. There, there's that. See? And that has its own mystery, its own challenges, its own gifts, there's all of that. <clears throat> but let's say a person in the midst of that, which is holiness, you know, so the holiness is in, is, is in the fidelity to that. Let's say a person in the midst of that, begins to experience what he talks about in the fourth mansion, where it's not me in prayer seeking God, but I begin to begin to experience God's presence silently flowing into my presence in a kind of a communal oneness between God and myself beyond words, which brings me into a state of quiet and that I know not what to make of it, and say, where can I find somebody to help me to understand, and that's where it gets. Mm-hmm. You have to find someone who himself or herself. Sometimes you find just a fellow traveler. You can share notes with each other and support each other. But sometimes you find someone who's a bit further down the road than you are, mm-hmm. and they're very familiar with how challenging this can be, because it's so delicate or it's so subtle. The how do we kind of? And so that's what makes reading someone like Teresa just a gift. Really, mm-hmm. we, we sense her, the clarity, you know, with which she speaks and touches uh, words of encouragement and fidelity to this. Yeah. And it's so rare that these uh, teachers, that there's not, there's not a, a book every year on <laughs> this kind of thing, like, like there are on many other topics, but it's, they, they seem to come along in, in kind of longer cycles. And so we're, we're drawn back to a teacher like Teresa, Thomas Merton, another one. But Yeah, uh, yeah I think this, I, I, my sense is this, is that there are clearly people, it's very rare that they have the teaching gift like she had. It has such stature and breadth like Merton. Like in each age, God raises up people that bear witness to that. And thousands and thousands of people were drawn to Merton for that person. But what I also have found in my travels is that there are people in monasteries and in retreat houses and in life who are very immersed in this and are, are, and are sharing it in one-on-one contemplative spiritual direction with people. Mm. And it's just there, but it doesn't draw attention to itself. Do I miss? Mm-hmm. So you have to keep your ear to the ground and listen and go looking like where can I sit in the presence of someone I can tell is uh, ripened with this, and who can sit with me? And they're they're there, but it's it's kind of it's it's hidden. You know, it's hidden in a tender way, and you have to just stay open and keep stay open. And in the meantime, you have life and the scriptures and prayer and Teresa. And these mm-hmm. myst- that's why we're studying these mystics so we can sit in their presence like this. And and really. She's about, and these mystics are about helping us understand 
who we are, not not something above and beyond um, just who we are and who we are in God. Is that is that yes, I think what, what she's trying to get at? Yeah, yeah, I would say that, yes, exactly. See, what she's saying is this, look, the idea isn't hearing about something called mystical union and how can I possibly get there. What she's saying, what we're to do instead it's to sit very deeply in the presence of God and bring ourselves to God as we are. Because that's where it's at. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's never other than the holiness and the immediacy and the subtlety and the unresolved matters of where we are brought to God in prayer and love. And that's what matters. And then it grows from there. See, it grows from there. So there's something about the childlike, humble sincerity of settling to where we are with an attentive heart, that we begin to sense maybe what she's speaking about is closer to me than I realized. You know, maybe it's something very simple, like disarmingly simple mm -hmm. and intimate. And she, I think that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to help us do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um. Uh, and then just the other uh, thing I wanted to draw out is uh, ultimately we will all experience this seventh mansion union. Um, it's our ultimate destiny. So not to worry if we're not experiencing it today. It's it's coming. It's on the horizon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's say, let's say really what she says, and that's why in the end she turns around at the seventh and say, "How can I be helpful?" The only thing that matters here, the currency of the land is holiness, see, is to do God's will. God's will is the radicality of love. See? And then in prayer, in God's providential wisdom, there are degrees to which we get foreshadowings of heaven, this kind of unitive state of infinite union with the divine. And um, so uh, with, with when we pass through the veil of death, we enter into this, like the fullness of this is our destiny. So that, that's that. And so what we're to do is to, like, to walk our walk in sincerity and love and humility, keep our heart open in prayer. And the extent to which this celestial union begins to occur in us now by dying of love, that is, we're literally dying of everything but love till there's nothing left of us but love, because God is love. That's, we just, we just see, we just see. So, so by hearing Teresa talk like this, uh, knowing the mystical body, what belongs to one of us, is given to one of us, belongs to all of us. And um, also she, she uh, invites us just to lean in towards it and keep our heart open. But when it does arise, it'll always arise not out of where we're supposed to be. It'll always arise unexpectedly out of where we are. Mm. That's the whole point, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I hear in in what you're saying, and what Teresa says that ultimately we can trust that God is guiding us and taking us exactly where we need to go, and and God is guiding us from that seventh mansion place, even though we may be only ex experiencing that as a mansion one person or a mansion two person. Yeah, I remember what Smerton said at the monastery. He said. <coughs> You know, the next time you receive the, you speaking of the Catholic tradition, you said, realize the next time you receive the Eucharist, that God's taking perfectly good care of you. Otherwise, this wouldn't be possible. 
And therefore, the very fact that people who are listening to this and are touched by it bears witness that they're being perfectly taken care of in ways they cannot and do not need to understand. Because if it weren't true, they wouldn't be touched by it. So it already, the very longing uh, and being drawn in closer to it bears witness to our heart. Because we only realize what in some way we're already into. And we're trying to get more deeply into what's already happening as evidenced by the fact that we're drawn to this, which is contemplative church. So, I mean, it's contemplative community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so funny. I, I'm just noticing even in this conversation how um, I've been in other meetings this morning and how I'm slowed right down as we mm-hmm. enter into to these kind of conversations and this kind of topic. And that that's a big part of it is learning to to slow ourselves down, to be present to our own lives. It is. In a previous session, I think we mentioned in therapy, I've noticed how a lot of psychotherapy is being with someone who repeatedly uh, invites you to slow down and listen at the feeling level to what you just said. They were always skimming over the surface of the depths of our own life. And that's why you can't skim read the mystics. In order to read the mystic, you have to read it very slow, very slow, very slow. And in a way, that's the pedagogy. Mm-hmm. You have to slow it down enough to kind of be touched by the nearness of what's being alluded to and then uh, learn to live there. And then you can carry that interior slowness. That's the seventh mansion. You can eventually learn to habituate that, like the axis of the turning world. You can learn to habituate in the midst of action. You know. Uh, over time becomes all pervasive yeah i wanted to reflect on the way the book is divided and uh you really divide it into these two parts with four as like a transition point and i've heard you use um terms like uh, mansions one to three are developing this spiritual and psychological maturity five to seven is is when it becomes mystical. But I've also heard you talk about life in mansions one to three as the life of the saint and then life in mansions five to seven as the life of the mystic. And I think with your Catholic background, that has a very particular meaning that um, it would be helpful for you to help us understand. Yeah. yeah let's say in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Christian tradition here is... Um, that really, really what matters here is holiness. That's what really matters is holiness, is that we, say speaking as a Christian, Christian, that we recognize what's revealed in Jesus is that God's response to us in our dilemma is to be identified with us as precious in the midst of our dilemma, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of, and then surrender to that, which is salvation, really. And then to live by that, to, to, live, to live by that, so it metamorphosizes our attitudes, it metamorphosizes the way we see everything, metaphors the way we treat people and see people, the earth and everything. That's really, that's it, see, that's it. And that's why these classical mystics are saints, they're all, they're saints who are very saintly, because the essence of it is holiness, really. So what the, the, what the mystic is, to p- 
poetic way of putting it, God decides with some people that you don't have to wait till after you're dead to begin to experience what awaits you in heaven. That even in space and time, you can realize that God's oneness with you, which in your very being is given to you breath by breath, is the divinity of being alive. That God can begin to flow in and realize the divinity of you in consciousness. That's, that's what the seventh mansion is, the imperial heaven which is this infinite union in heaven, is inside of you. So if heaven is where God lives, since God dwells within you, the kingdom of heaven is within you, your soul is God's heaven. And so we, it can be a vocation or a charism to be drawn into this foreshadowing of eternal life through dying to everything less than this love, finding our way into the seventh mansion. So really it's a kind of a charism of the church this kind of mystical uh, dimension of, uh, of uh, incarnate infinity uh, actualized in these people. And then we realize that they're, she's, she's talking to all those who are so drawn to it. Thomas Merton saying there are many people who are drawn to this. They have no one to bear witness to it, what's happening to them. And St. John of the Cross, <clears throat> he says, uh, we'll be looking at John of the Cross next, I guess, it's our next mystic. And... Um, uh, it's, Thomas Merton said John of the Cross is writing for beginners, but he's writing for a certain kind of beginner, this kind. Mm -hmm. And Teresa does the same thing. She starts for a certain beginner, not the mystical beginner. Let's start with all, matter of fact, let's begin before we became a beginner. Let's talk about when we were lost and wandering around and God found us there. And then let's stabilize in mature Christian living. Let's stabilize in the holiness of living. And then realize that for some people, She's this is why I'm writing this book. There are some people for whom they begin to experience something happening to them. Not my efforts to reaching God, but God flowing into me, seeking me out, and God's presence uh, being infused into my presence in a unitive state. That I, I, like I, I try to understand what's happening with me and how do I cooperate with this? How do I not get in its way? See, how am I to understand what it's asking out of me? And that's what she's, that's what all the mystics are offering, really, I think, mystic teachers. So in, in Catholic terminology, mansions one to three, there's many saints, that yeah. people have been deemed saints that, that uh, Teresa would, would, in Teresa's pedagogy, would have only got to mansion three, but then they had a different charism to yeah. a mystical charism, and they, they traveled... Yeah a different path and then there's some that have this more mystical charism yes I'm I'll, put, I'll put it another way about saints here's how i put it to see how i put it is for many of us this is true where would we be without that person who saw in us a value we couldn't yet see and who where would we be without that person in whose presence, when we, when we revealed the painful thing, the thing we're most ashamed of or broken, instead of pulling away from us or judging us, kind of sat with us to accept us in a way that helped us to accept ourselves as an echo of how God already accepts us in our brokenness. Look at, look at the indebtedness of that holiness you know, of the person. And then we realize we're called to pass that on. We're called to be that for each other, which is the holiness of, 
of daily life. There's that. And then there's this mystical dimension of that, which to varying degrees is present in everybody. But she's talking about the person for whom is their primary way in the midst of all the others. Yeah. Mm. That's helpful to understand. Thank you. Um, Jim, that, that, that pouring, you, you talked about it just a minute ago about um, the way the water pours. Uh, she uses that metaphor, the water pours from us to God, and then it starts to, to flow in without effort. And you, you used in the podcast also the word energy. Kind of, the energy starts coming in the opposite direction. What, did, what do you mean by energy? But by energy, I mean, um, let's put it this way. Let's say there's there's two people who are in love with each other. And in a moment of intimate sharing, they're in the energy field of each other's love. Mm -hmm. That is, it's not an abstraction. You know, it's not an idea or a thought. It's not a theory. Mm. It's not a thing. It's a certain vibrancy of the intimacy of love, <coughs> see? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that is a sacrament or an echo of this vibrancy of this infinite love, see, as, mm -hmm. a living, as the living reality of love actively flowing into us, like touching us, awakening us, calling us. And then the prayer becomes our surrender to that or our attentiveness to that or our how do we give ourselves in love to this love that's giving itself to us, like this reciprocity of love? It's energy in that sense. It's a kind mm -hmm. of unifying love energy, a oh, presence, yeah. the fullness of presence. The love is the fullness of presence. Mm -hmm. and it's that overflowing energy of presence. Mm -hmm. What's coming to mind for me as you talk about that is, um, I, as mentioned, I was not able to have my own children, but when I, um, my sisters had four children and I've had, had the experience of being able to hold her babies on the day they were born and this, this uh, little being in my arm and I'm completely in love with him or her, uh, two boys, two girls, just completely in love with them and that energy field between us lasts uh, across the ocean and across yeah. the yeah. lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing I think the mystics are saying is that all the dimensions of us are created by God. Therefore, that capacity, while holding that little newborn infant to feel moved by that love, God creates that love. And God's the infinity of that love. So that way you are so moved by the infant is an echo of how infinitely God is freely choosing to be moved by you see, mm. and holding you, desiring you. And then God asks of you out of that same primitive purity see, to reciprocate that union. So it's like a little taste of heaven. And really it's a really taste of God's love for you being manifested in the immensity with which the infant moved you. The love of the child. And it's like, a, like being a momentary mystic in a moment like that. Yeah. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. I wanted to ask you about, uh, you use the wording 
wounded with discontent. So I have a, a few questions around this. What, what discontent? Um, what, what's the phrase? Wounded. Wounded oh, with uh, yeah, discontent. Yeah, yeah wounded so, with discontent, yes. Yeah, and I have a few few questions. Okay. Um, so you talk about the process of being wounded by love. Uh, so c- can you help me understand how I would differentiate between being wounded by love or and being wounded by life, or, or are they yeah. the same? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. Let, let's say, first of all, I'm going to talk psychologically first. Let's say there's the, the discontent of having been wounded by past traumas and abandonments. Because even though the wounding experiences may have passed, we realize they kind of got into us. They got into us. like We're like trapped in this interior woundedness. And we're discontent with that as well we should be. You know, we, we have this intuition, I have a right to live my life. You know, I, I was, I'm placed here to be fully alive and I'm not. I'm like the walking wounded. So how can I be healed from that which hinders me from being coming into the fullness of that? There's that kind of woundedness. And then we're motivated in the search for wholeness, whatever, we, whatever means we seek that. There's another kind of woundedness, which is the grace of woundedness. And it's the grace of having been granted a taste of love. By the way, the, the, the nuptial mystics see marital love as a, as a sacrament of this. I want to say it in spiritual terms. Is that there's a moment that you've been touched, like intimately touched, with God being infinitely in love with you. And being, as St. Augustine said, closer to you than you are to yourself. And in that touch, that overflowing fullness of being so touched, when it withdraws from from you, there's the holy discontent mm. of being satisfied with anything less than the infinite love that fleetingly touched you in the moment. And that discontent is the impetus of the path. Mm-hmm. See, how mm-hmm. can I be stabilized in an habitual state of a loving union I know is real because I experienced it. But it doesn't lie within my finite powers to make it happen. That's the dilemma of the seeker. See, That God touches us with a desire by our own powers we're powerless to consummate, which then deepens our radical dependency on God, turning to God. And, uh, and that's the path. So the whole path of the mystics is the path that leads us along that consummation mm-hmm. of unconsummated longing. Mm-hmm. You you say I think Teresa says this as well that we'll be wounded I think by our state of life or in our state of life. So how might that be different for us? What 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 was a wounded state for you, Jim? And I, I wonder what mine might be. Yes. In in my state <clears throat> of life. Well, let's say first in the first woundedness, we're all wounded to varying degrees in our state of life with traumas and abandonments and life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing our best to uh, be a whole, protective, nurturing person. And when suffering occurs, doing our best to relieve it in ourselves and others. There's all that. Okay. But we're asking the question: How would this holy woundedness occur yes. in the midst of life? And and I'll, I'll apply it to you with the image you use about holding the little baby. I would say, in the moment you held the baby, you were wounded. 
wounded by a love which in the moment was a freedom from woundedness. It was like blessedness. But in, say, in your own inability to have children, the touch of holding the child was a wound. And that God is somehow the infinity of that wound. God is somehow the unexpected intimacy with which you're asked to find God and the arising of maternal energies rising out of your heart as a path. And so I think everybody has that. It's, she says that early in the third mansion that she said, we live, we're cloistered nuns, but married people find this in their marriage. See, we see parents finding in their parenting. Mm-hmm. Teachers find it in their tea. How can I, how can I f- find this in the situation in which I am? And it's always, it's universally intimate. Mm. See, it always gives itself to me. So for me, in my childhood, with all this severe trauma going on, see, I, I found it in the in the midst of being repeatedly terrified by my father was beating me, and I found it as something I held on to for dear life that I not be annihilated like that, which led me to the monastery. Mm. And then I found what happened to me in the monastery. And then when I left and got married, and got a marriage that fell apart, I found it in holding on to dear life, understanding what in the hell happened here. Like all this, I didn't do this for it to fall apart. But the more I looked at it, I could see how unwittingly the the, the structures, it was inevitable that it fall apart. And how I was distant from my own children because of my trauma and my own therapy. And then I met Maureen and we found, so I always think we're looking at the, like the crest of the wave of the grace that's present in the sometimes uncomfortable immediacy of the fullness of what we're being asked to look at or to listen to or to walk with or to be faithful to and to be honest about. If that makes it, so I would put it that way. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about your story there, Jim, is um, that you were wounded in life with with trauma when you were young, but um, you you were also wounded with this holy desire within that that yeah. situation of wounding. So it's 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 not like the wounding in life might even be completely separate from the holy wounding. <laughs> Yes, and I think what happened to me, I think this happens to other people too. See, I, I think when I was uh, touched by this in my woundedness in my childhood, Red Merton, I went to the monastery. In the silence of the monastery, in kind of the lofty part of myself, in silence, there were all these realizations that were happening to me, these experiences. But down in my body was sleeping the trauma that was sleeping inside of me. And it unexpectedly came out and brought me down. You know, I left. See. Had to go into therapy, go through a lot of stuff. So, everyone, we have to follow our path. You know, Thomas yeah. Merton said we must never underestimate the need to tell the truth. And any unacknowledged part of ourselves can rise up and overtake the gift. See? Mm. So it's an ever more inclusive state of acceptance and honesty and vulnerability. And so for me, paradoxically, then it came full circle in leaving, going through all of that, and then becoming, going through my own therapy, working with trauma, and how trauma touches transcendence. You know, I was leading silent retreats, sitting with traumatized people, and I was a traumatized person leading the retreat. And it gave me a strange sense of the traumatized world and the holiness that shines in it. 
like this. And that's been my path, you know. I that everyone has their path. You know, everyone is has their story of how they're being led along this way. But the stories converge in different places. You can mm -hmm. see how we all all these stories resonate with each other, mm -hmm. with these certain patterns of vulnerability and surrender and transformation and all all of life, I guess. Can you help us understand um, this sense of discontent and, and how it might show up in our day-to-day -day life? Would it be a sense of a discontent with my whole life, a discontent with my my own behavior, a discontent with my relationships, or is it is it something different? What well, would be, I guess, some patterns how it's experienced. One common way, I think, is we become aware of how caught up we are in the complexities and demands of the day. And we realize that what it's asking about us is like dragging us down the road. And somehow I lost myself along the way. So unless I pause to freely choose, like the inner freedom of a hiatus from the momentum, or just a quiet rendezvous, just to be simple and honest and vulnerable and present, it could be, in a that could take different forms, but it could also uh, bring it to God in prayer. And then I discover that that grounding place is at first subtle and hard to hold on to because my cell phone goes off, I'm distracted. But little by little by little, I can sink the taproot of my heart in that. In marriages, it can happen this way. Two people realize they've, you're like, you're busy, I'm busy, we're kind of losing our way here. Mm -hmm. And if we don't stop and set aside time where there's an agenda of love alone, we can lose this. We can lose this. And so it's the willingness to pause and stop and get regrounded. Where, Likewise, some people can be so busy, they never really look at their own child. You know, they never, the child say, will you read me a good night story? They don't realize that to read your child a good night story is God. You know, they don't, they don't let. Or if we live alone, a person can just um, feel the, their loneliness. But they don't realize that inside the loneliness is solitude, never less alone than when alone. See? A person with chronic illness, a person with the death of a loved one, all these are modalities of transformation. If, we're, if we stop long enough to be courageously present to them in a loving way and listen very deeply see, to the presence that's hidden in them as we learn to, I think it's like that. It's what makes it always so personal. Mm. That's why I think this language with Teresa, we're always right at the edge of spiritual direction. You know, you take one step yes. closer. It's so evocative because everyone says, well, what about that? What about? And it, it engages us with ourselves. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's helpful, Jim. So uh, there, there could, it could start with a level of a sense of discontent about our current life something yeah. going on in our life or our yeah. kind of yeah. life state. But, but if we sit with it, it might, what, what we're actually looking for is it, there is a sense of that holy discontent. And exactly. We, yeah. yeah. Let's say at work, for example, another example. A person can be at a job and say, you know what, if I'm honest about it, I really don't give it my best. I'm about half throttle. I think it would be good if I understood what that's about. Because maybe if I gave it my best, I would offer more and it would offer me more. But where do we, like the compromises of our heart, where do you do mm -hmm. like this? So now what we're talking about 
if if the place of work or the place of daily life or the place of marriage or the place of whatever has it then we're saying that ultimately speaking in religious consciousness mm-hmm. what is it then in the midst and maybe the mystical touch comes in holding a baby doesn't come in prayer maybe the mystical touch comes oh, as i was holding the baby there was something infinitely more than the baby giving itself to me there see it was really a touch of god and having been touched by it then there's the gift of longing to abide in it and that that's the holy longing see that that's the path how can i habituate and stabilize in that state that i know is real because it touched me mm-hmm. like that and that's what i think it's you know, the god's the infinity of all these modalities i hear the question in uh in this teaching around can i be grounded in something deeper and more trustworthy than i than i am and and i really resonate with that and i think similar to what you're describing with the ideas of discontent that um it's interesting to look at where i i have aimed my trust or my my sense of deepening myself and like in my job or in my relationship or I think even in religion like when I started going to church and um you know I looked to religion to deepen me but but I think what what Teresa's saying what you're saying is it's actually found in God like yes I you know I want to be doing some study group work with people again in Gabriel Marcel Mm-hmm. And on the internet, there's uh, Gary Sadler has a series of philosophy lectures. He's very good. And he has two on, on the ontological mystery in Gabriel Marcel. And just yesterday I was listening to this. Last night I couldn't sleep. I was listening to Gabriel Marcel. <laughs> and he says, he said, what, he said, the thing is, can I learn to trust what does not depend on me? Mm. And which by my own powers I can't make happen. That's trust. Which is faith. See, that, that, that's a big question. Because yes, yes. if it all depends on me, so you have the problematic. See, you have methodologies. You have, but what is it? Can I learn to trust what doesn't depend on me, which entrusts itself to me? See, and is calling me to itself. And I think that's that's the. And here's the thing: if we've been traumatized or hurt, we're afraid to entrust it. Because if yes. I open my heart like that, I'll get hurt again. But unless I risk it again, the, the, the internalized trauma and abandonment has the final say. Practically, not ultimately. Only love has the final say. So it's only if I believe, yes, all these things have happened. And yes, I'm doing my best. I have all these gifts and abilities, whatever they are. But, and we should do that. But there, but there is that which matters very, very much which doesn't depend on me. It's, it's more than the sum total, it's infinitely more than the sum total of all of this. It's granting tastes of itself in the midst of all of this. Mm-hmm. And how can I learn to live by that and abide by that? That's, I think that's a good way to see it sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. The phrase that's coming to mind that you often say is, um, so it's like, can my dependencies on my own efforts be conquered by love. Would that be how you use that? Exactly. It's what she says at the beginning of the fourth mansion. She says, Mm -hmm. the trouble with third mansion living, which is virtue, is that reason has not yet been conquered by love. It's Mm -hmm. entirely too reasonable. Mm -hmm. She said, third mansion people, they do go sailing, that is, they pray. 
but they're always careful to keep the shore in view. See, you always <laughs> circle back around to write in your journal your latest intuition or your message. <laughs> but what happens when the open sea is carrying you out into open water? See, what if God is saying, you know, you're being drawn out into something yes. see, the, of the unexplainable, which is an act then of trust and surrender to this, like this mystery, and then she's offering mm -hmm. reassurance. <laughs> That, that's a, that's a, a good way of looking at it because my my effort and my energy to get back to the shore. But what if I let the current draw me draw me away? That's like that the, the energy going in the opposite direction. It really is it. It's it's almost like the intuition is saying, look, you know, even if if I were capable of attaining it, it would be infinitely less than what alone will fulfill me. If I were even capable of comprehending it, it would be infinitely less. Mm -hmm. Even if I were capable of losing it, it would be infinitely less. Mm -hmm. And somehow it's delicately infusing itself tenderly. See, enlarging my heart to divine proportions is starting to... But instead of staying there long enough to let it have its way with me, I move on to the next thing. But what if I would stay there long enough to kind of settle deep down into it and see where it takes me. Which is, by the way, the only truly trustworthy thing. Sometimes I always used to people say this to me in spiritual direction. They say, you know, one prayer I'm afraid to say, really, is thy will be done. Because mm -hmm. God just might take me up on it. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. so I thought, imagine, I said, imagine uh, you, you, t you could talk to somebody and you know, and they say, Oh, you know, did you hear what happened to so and so last week? You go, no, what? And so, and you say, God will, God's will was done in her. You go, no kidding. I saw her Thursday. She was fine. But you know what? I was next to her in chapel. I heard her say, that will be done. It's like driving without a seatbelt. You take chances. Look what happens. See? So we always hold back a little just in case. Yes, but, yes. But, but what happens when it's already too late? See, what happens? If there's a tenderness that's already having its way with us, and it understands why we're afraid, and asks us to understand we're afraid, and to bring the fear to that love. Yes. And that's the intimacy of it, I think. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's helpful. Can you um, help me understand, help us understand, what would it feel like to have a moment of the ego being conquered by love? Like, what would that, what would that feel like? What might that be like? What What's an example? Well, it's always concrete. I'll go back to you holding the little baby again. It feels like that. Mm. It feels mm. like that. Or another way, I used, to, I used to think of it, I think when I was a therapist too doing this, so I used to teach high school with the students. I taught high school religion, seniors in high school, Christology and different things. It was great. And um, it had its own things, you know, with it. I loved it, really. And sometimes the students would be there. I was so taken by the collective sincerity and their struggles. You know, like, like what a gift it is to be in a room full of young people that are honestly asking about God or even wanting to share why they don't even care about God. And it's a safe place to say that. And this is a pretty amazing place. Like, how can this be a safe place for these people? Mm. to be and I'm called to be with them and what is teaching them so it, it comes to us unexpected it can come to us in long slow walks alone and you realize in a long slow walk to no place in particular there's a certain granting that comes to you 
like that, like you're touched or drawn by something that has no name. You're drawn. So I think that's what we're looking for. Gabriel Marcel says, we do not see the light. We are the aperture through which it shines. Mm. And there's a certain place where it comes shining through in suffering or birth or death or loss or poetry or service. And so what if I would then sit with that? You know what I mean? It's, uh, uh, Richard uses that beautiful teaching on great love and great suffering as our teachers. So could it also be uh, I lose my job, I, I fail at something, and and in the um, in the the sense of failure, not not letting it have the last word, like finding finding something more meaningful about myself in God, or finding something more meaningful beyond being stuck and named by the failure. I think this. Uh, let, let's let's say we're talking about devastating suffering, like real loss, like your house mm -hmm. burns to the ground, or your spouse oh. dies, your yeah. child dies, or a marriage you thought was going to last falls apart. You know, there's a, there's a certain way you need to be very careful not to romanticize suffering with spiritual language. Yes. And the only authentic response to such a person is, "I'm so deeply sorry you are having to go through this." Really, so we meet the person so they know that they're seen in their suffering. We're with them in their suffering and join them in their suffering. And as we walk with them, like, what could we maybe do here together that might lighten the burden somewhat? And as they do that walk, which is always very, it's like deep doing deep therapy and trauma work, for example, they discover, you know, it was precisely the moment in which it got so dark that a light that I didn't even know was there was shining through, like coming into the darkness to find me. It's precisely when it was so terrible, I discovered it wasn't just terrible. It was terrible. Then that which was so terrible was the granting of something that maybe I never would have found had it not come so terrible. And I think it's like that, you know, so we mm -hmm. first meet it and honor it for what it is, like we're trying to, like that. Then if we sit with it deeply, vipassana, like looking deeply into it, we can see shining out through the intimacy of it. So in Christian terms, this is the mystery of the cross in the ground of our body, the mystery of the cross in the ground of our mind. The mystery, it's the crucifixion of our dreaded and cherished illusions that anything less than an infinite union with infinite love will ever be enough for us. And that infinite love is shining out through the intimate immediacy of the unbearable thing mm. and can touch me there. And so, I don't know, there's a place where suffering and transcendence touch each other. Mm-hmm. Like that. And um yeah. And the mystery of the cross, like you say. It is. It's, it's yeah. All you, yeah. Turning a little bit more uh focused on the sixth mansion, why do you think that book is so the the sixth mansion is so long in the book? It's eleven chapters. It's it's a big chunk of it. <clears throat> I think it's because See, let, let's say first in the fourth mansion, there's the first intimations of this influx and the quiet, and your heart's being all that. She talks about all of that. <clears throat> and then in the fifth mansion, the influx of the divine becomes so pure that the reflective intentional self can no longer be the basis for it. And the self goes into kind of a sleep. It's a kind of a death, really. And in that death, the seventh mansion stands free and clear. 
That is, the infinite presence of God is presencing itself as the immediacy of your very presence, a transubjective communion. So when you return to reflective consciousness, that union you didn't see because you weren't there washes over you, that momentary touch. And you, you have the certainty that you were in God and God was in you. You desire only to do the will of God, and you're this butterfly with tattered wings. It's like that. What happens in the sixth mansion is that that, that, that fleeting moment of, of oneness starts becoming... Is that the dog? Yes, <laughs> it's good. It's good. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. No, it helps. It's good. It's good. What is it? Okay, off you go. Off you go. Off you go. There's a seventh mansion arising upstairs that they yeah. tend to. I hear it. I They're hear disappearing it. from from See, me. Yeah, here's, here's what Teresa would say. See, was that? interlude with the dog an interruption or is god the infinity of the barking dog see is is, is everything the divinity flowing out like that un uninterruptedly like that's a nice little sense of it so what happens in the sixth mansion is that god starts moving back and forth across the entire range of all your experiences dismantling your ability to live there on your own terms so being understood by other people, physical health, mm. mishaps, uh, and also intense raptures. Raptures meaning God carries you off to have your soul entirely for himself. Like this, the intensity of these raptures, visions, okay, all these. You're in a really mysterious state that can go on for years, really. And really, you're being, you're being unraveled mm. see, by love with anything less than love as being the basis for your security and identity. And there's a lot of fear in it. There's a lot of, you know, there's, there's, there's that. It's, it's a, it's, she said it's a delectable death see, that you go through like this. And so the sixth mansion goes on for so long because it's so all-pervasive. There's no nook or corner that's reserved as separate from the love that doesn't find that little piece of yourself and take that too. Wow. By transforming it into love, my fears, my hopes, my waking up in the morning, the unresolved matter of my heart, you know, the tender place, my anger, my fear, whatever it is, it becomes all pervasively. Uh, Meister Eckhart says it's what happens when a person encounters the same. No matter where I turn, it's all the same. There's just one love. And so Teresa says it's all the same. There's just one love making a huge move on you. See, and literally what it's doing is transforming you into itself, little by little by little by little by like that, see. So that's what's happening mm. in the six months. And in all nooks and crannies of your whole life, and meaning any place you're, you might be blocking that openness uh, uh, to love, any it, place where you might have your identity uh, and uh, anything uh, like that love, any place uh, 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 yes it comes in different ways i think one way it comes to me is often it goes this way it's any place that i'm i'm it's as unresolved like a habit mm. of my heart some unresolved whatever we all have our little rituals of things it's any place that i actually believe that has the authority to in any way diminish the love that's happening to me mm. i attribute authority 
to an unresolved thing, a hurtful thing, an angry thing. Mm -hmm. And giving that authority is a way to keep my toehold. See, it's a paradoxical form of control, or it's, attrib it's, it's attributing to authority to any attainment that I have. Mm. Maybe attainment in mystical consciousness, maybe an attainment in art or teaching or whatever, and attributing authority to it. Mm. It's just somehow it's, it, it's gracious enough or generous enough to reveal to me who I am. Because only this love that's taking me to itself has the authority to name who I am. And that's what I think it is. It's just uh, it's an all-pervasive coup d'etat of mm. this love over the infinity of the unresolved, infinity of, you know, it's like that everything becomes un 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 incomprehensibly and unexpectedly clear. It I sounds think. like that it could be horrible, but is there, <laughs> is there a sense that you're so far along that even all of that feels trustworthy? Yeah, yeah that's what happens yeah, in the, the undoing of yourself. That's what happens in the that's what happens in the seventh mansion. Mm -hmm. it, by the way, it seems horrible sometimes because it is horrible. She said there's great suffering in mm -hmm. this, and sometimes God visits us with physical suffering. You go through deep periods of thinking maybe you don't even believe in God anymore. You don't love God anymore. She's then going for weeks and months like this, feeling alone. It sounds horrible because it is horrible. She's, you're literally dying. It's, she's really asking what happens when we die? Mm -hmm. Namely, what happens when we die for all the threads that connect us, anything less than the love, get untangled mm -hmm. and broken, see? And yet it's horrible. At one level, it's so horrible only to the point that I resist it. See, it's yeah. only the resistance of it that's horrible. But if I trust it and move with it and understand it and trust it and know that my suffering is united me with the suffering of everyone throughout the whole world, my suffering yeah. unites me with all of this, then it's suffering. But it, she said, it, you'd never have been happier in your whole life. Hmm. Never been no, you've never been so blessed. You had no idea it could be anything like this. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like that. That's the paradox. So. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's, if we relate it to death when you're, I'm just thinking back to my, witnessing my grandmother's death and uh, realizing you, my grandmother was so active, had so many friends, had, you know, you know a, a beautiful garden and watching her slowly pass away in hospice, like just realizing each one of those things uh, weren't there with her. <laughs> she, she didn't have a friend. She couldn't. She always helped people, even her ability to help people. Initially, when she got into hospice, you know, I'll pour my own water. I'll do, she, she even wanted to help the people around her. But in the end, she, she couldn't even help people. And then there was this beautiful um, moment right before she died. She'd been fast asleep and um, almost in a coma-like state. And uh, the uh, chaplain came into her room and, and said to her, um, her name was Norma, Norma, are you happy with your God? And she opened her eyes and she said, I am happy because God is love. Mm -hmm. That was the last thing she ever said. Yeah. And uh, I remember being happy for her, you know, that she was in such a peaceful state. And then months, 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 months later, I remember waking up with my grandmother saying that and and saying to me and you can find that now yeah. and and thinking all the things she let go of and didn't have when she said that and maybe yeah. that's kind of what she was pointing to 
Yes, yeah, good. That's why I think death is really good. Uh, helps us to see this, like the stages of dying coming to acceptance. A little bit of stage. So all the previous stages—denial, anger, bargaining, depression—that's all the ego facing us to mind. But acceptance, she says, not everyone comes to acceptance. And she describes being in the presence of someone dying with acceptance. She describes it as uncanny. Mm. And you, like there's something very deep and beautiful. And when you look into the face of the dying beloved who's come to acceptance, you know that their face is the gate of heaven. Okay? Mm-hmm. It's the great passing away in which nothing's left but that which never passes away. And so, it, 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 so then God's the infinity of death. See, God's the infinity, the death, everything less than God. So then, can we die mystically? That is, can I, mm-hmm. can I be so, kind of so perfectly die of love that in some sense when the moment of biological death comes, nothing will happen? Because I've already crossed over into the love that crossed over into me. Something clearly will happen when I die, I'll be dead. <laughs> but I won't give any talks anymore, so that settles that. So, uh, But in another way, at the factual level, but is there, is there the, the welling up of the eternality of the fleetingness of it all? Is there the welling up of the deathless beauty that never dies? And somehow that moment with the dying loved one and acceptance, we cherish it. Because it really is for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And can you experience it now? And see, I would say the question, can you experience it now, is the voice of God, which is the call to mystical union. Mm. Can I? You could wait till your deathbed, wait till you're in hospice, and wait till the 11th hour, and the gate will fly open. <laughs> but maybe why postpone it? See, what would mm. be possible to taste it now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's right. <laughs> Well, we are reaching almost the hour mark, and I have a lot more questions. So, Corey, I'm wondering if we should turn this into two episodes and and finish this one here. Should we? Yeah. Yeah. How do you? It's worth it, do you think? Yeah, because we haven't really looked at the seventh mansion yet. Uh, And I have a lot more questions about the sixth. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, they're so rich. These when it reaches this crescendo, all these mystics are going to be this way. It reaches the crescendo. You like the fullness of it is so. It's anyway, let's do that. Let's honor the pacing of this. And so we'll just set a time and um, resume this mm-hmm. at seventh match, and, and that'll set up the time to answer the students' questions. And that'll kind of round out to you. Okay, good. Yeah, I think wonderful. I feel good. Yeah, ni- it was a nice yeah, dialogue. It was lovely. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was a nice moment. Yeah. So anyway, good stuff. So we'll... well. Thank you so much for today, Jim. Thank you for what you share, all yeah. you share. Yeah. And uh, I'll look forward to the next time. Good, good. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, 
and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.